The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods." And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, family, good to see you. If... We haven't met before. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited for tonight. If you have a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It'll take us a little bit to get there. Um, Let me pray for us, and we'll get started tonight. Father God, we thank you uh, for the gathering of your people We thank you for the the truth of the songs we just sang, that you're faithful to us. You've pardoned us. You've made a way for us to be made right with yourself and also to be a family. So pray that you would be with us tonight. Help us to receive your word. Pray that it would change us. We would send your spirit. Pray it on your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to start by telling you the story of modern American advertising or marketing. So it actually started with Sigmund Freud, which you might remember from your Psych 101 class in college. The neurologist, he did the id, ego, superego. You probably got that wrong on the quiz. He was the first modern thinker to disagree with the Enlightenment's premise that humans are predominantly rational, i.e. the I think, therefore I am premise of human behavior and nature. Freud said, not so fast. We are rational thinkers, and we do make rational decisions, but we make all sorts of irrational decisions every day. He said that not only, that we're not just run by our rational desires, but something called our unconscious drives, unconscious desires, a sort of automatic impulse in our body. So Freud says that this means we are far more vulnerable to manipulation from the outside and self-deception from the inside than many of us are willing to believe. And tragically, as Freud was Jewish, the first people to take his ideas seriously were actually the Nazis who used his theories on human nature uh, to form most of their propaganda. But after the war, it was actually Freud's nephew who brought his ideas to the forefront of the advertising world. He came back from the war with a question. He said, if the Nazis could use these theories that humans are driven by their unconscious desires, if they could use these ideas to shape Germans during the war, could we use these ideas to shape Americans during the peace? 
He pitched these ideas and has since been called the father of American advertising. You've likely never heard of him, and that's intentional. He wrote in his uh, sort of ironically titled book, Propaganda, this. He said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we've never heard of. Welcome to Citizens Church. You are a puppet on the string, being manipulated by the government and big corporations. It sort of feels like a conspiracy theory, but, but it's not. This is a well-known fact that after World War II, uh, politicians and advertisers came together in hopes of pushing Americans to buy more stuff to stimulate the economy. A popular quote that you hear about this is from Paul Mazur of the Lehman Brothers. He said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. You see, at the time, people bought things that they just needed. It wasn't anything like, oh, I really want the shiny thing. It was just about what is functional to my life. And he said, we have to change that. And this was the dawn of what is called planned obsolescence, which is the reason you want the new iPhone every year. It's planned. It's, it's totally planned by Apple, all of the big companies, that we're going to design something new, and you're going to want it, even though the thing you already have is fine. Uh, Victor Lebo, a retail analyst at the time, this was beginning remark of this. It's shocking. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. I love this part. It says we need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly expensive consumption. And all of those guys were riding in the 50s well before anything called an iPhone or the internet was thought of. Now, only, now not only do advertisers pitch stuff to us based off of theories, they have access to your data, to your social media, to your internet history, possibly your real-life conversations in text. This is totally anecdotal, but I tell it because you've probably all experienced something similar. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to a friend. They, I was in front of my computer, and I said... I really want a hot tub one day, but I can't afford it. And literally minutes later, I am on Facebook, and what pops up? Cheap hot tubs on sale. Thank you, Freud. This is craziness. It's not actually um, only about the stuff either. It's also about uh, the things we do. It's about the things we do. It affects what we do. So the average American watches three hours of TV a day touches their phone 2,600 times a day, spends four and a half hours on said phone, two and a half of which are on social media. This is the average. And when we're not consuming things on our devices, we're probably consuming leisure time. In 2021, Americans took two billion just domestic vacations, most of which accounted for by Tim Olson. 
It's a good joke because he's not here to defend himself because he's on vacation. This accounted for roughly $1 trillion of economic production. Yet, somehow every year, there's over 500 million unused vacation days because we're also the most overworked nation in the world. We're a nation of consumers being consumed. So I, I say all that not to freak you out and exhaust you with a bunch of numbers, but really to bring this up. Think, think about your own budget, your own life. Think about your schedule, your time, your stuff. Does it genuinely ever feel like it's too much? Like you're overwhelmed, that you feel a lot of clutter, not just in front of you, but maybe in your mind, in your heart? Do you ever feel jealous of other people and what they have? You feel discontent, like you're chasing after something in your mind. You're like, if I only had that, if I only had that thing, does it feel frivolous? Uh, do you ever feel like maybe underneath it all, that all the stuff you have, the things that you do, are maybe just distracting you from things that really matter? Like, Loving your family, loving your friends, your church family, maybe Jesus himself. I, th I think if we're honest, we know that the gospel, one, confronts all cultures, but two, I think we know that it confronts our culture in this way, that our culture of consumption, we, we have a feeling that it probably doesn't line up with what Jesus has called us to, life with him in the kingdom. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we follow Jesus in this culture that's always consuming stuff? Consuming uh, stuff, wanting more money, more media, more of your time, energy. It's noisy. So what would Jesus do? Um, both in Jesus' teachings and his life, we're going to see that it shows that consumption of more isn't part of life in the kingdom. So I just want to show you where we see it in both his life and his teachings. So you can go to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, we'll go to verse 18. We'll get to Luke still, I promise. But this is Matthew 8, 18. You can follow along with me on the screen. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So I want you to think about this. This is God incarnate. The Son of God, Jesus himself. He's dwelt with God in eternity forever. He's the Word. He created all things. All money, all gold, silver, clothing of every color, diamonds, mansions, whatever the thing is. But he empties himself in the language of Philippians and becomes a man. And not just a man, a seemingly homeless man, a poor man, man without a house, without a lease. It, it would seem that he owns nothing at all except for the clothes on his back, but we even know from other teachings that those are up for grabs if somebody else is in need. Jesus would be considered by both our standards in the West and the standards of his time to be a very poor man. And yet this poor man is inviting us into a rich life, a rich life of abundance, abundance and goodness. He says, follow me into the life of goodness. I own nothing. I don't even have a pillow. I don't have a place to sleep tonight. I think this flies in the face 
of how our culture determines who to follow. Like in the world of social media and influencers, we're drawn to success. We're drawn to material possessions and abundance. We think that riches and stuff are markers of inherent goodness. So if we're being honest, we, we got to see this poor homeless guy inviting us to follow him and think, this is the way to the good life? Why would the Son of God come in this way? And that's because Jesus owned everything necessary to have a perfect life with God. Jesus owned everything necessary to have a perfect life with God. There are no material possessions necessary or required for life in the kingdom. In fact, it would seem it would be much more necessary for us to have Jesus' posture of non-attachment, to be freed of the things of this world. Jesus' life shows us that more is not necessary. But we also see this in his teaching. We can go to Luke 12. You can flip over there or follow along. This is a story and a parable that Jesus teaches about what happens when we get all of this wrong. We actually do make consumption a way of life. Luke chapter 12, pick it up in verse 13. It reads, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So a man comes to Jesus and is essentially wanting him to resolve a, a law issue. Divide the inheritance. Give me what actually belongs to me. And Jesus says, who am I to judge this over you? Not in like uh, he's just apathetic, like reserving, like I don't care. What he's doing is he's cutting to what the issue actually is. He says it's not about the money. It's about the covetousness. In other translations, it would say greed. The love of money. The love of possessions. The love of consumption. And essentially, Jesus' response is, I'm not going to sign off on your desire for more things. Now, he's not saying that wealth is bad. He's saying that the covetousness is the problem. The desire for more. He's making a statement, not just about money, but about the nature of reality. That the good life is not determined by what you have. By about your stuff, your money. And now, he's going to keep going and demonstrate the point by telling this parable. Verse 16 says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I love this story. I think you see the, the wonder of Jesus' storytelling here. So what, what he does is he juxtaposes the land versus the man. So he says the land produces plenty. Emphasis on that. The land has nothing to do. The land producing has nothing to do with this guy or what he does. It has everything to do with what God is doing 
and what the people that worked the field did, which would not be this man. So it's very clear from the upfront. All this guy has comes from God, but the man misses it. And so he stops and he has like a, a rhetorical, you know, he's talking to an internal dialogue, talking to himself. And he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to put all of my stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll store it up. I will say to my soul, relax. If you, if you were one of Jesus' hearers at the time, you would have heard this and said, it sounds like he's just all about himself. It reads like me, me, I, I, I. It's all about me. Uh, this man is blessed by God, clearly. But the problem is he's so taken in by it all and by himself that he misses what it's actually all for. We also know that he's focused solely on himself because the question that he asks is rhetorical. If you're one of Jesus' hearers in the agrarian communal culture that they're in, the question of what shall I do with my excess crops would have been an obvious answer. If Jesus says that, all of the hearers are like, you share it, obviously. That's, that's part of our society, duh. But instead, this guy says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. More for me. And which quickly, if you notice, digresses into hedonism, right? Pleasure. I'm going to relax, eat, drink, be merry. My soul will be at rest because I have more than enough saved up in my barns. And God's response is to call him a fool. He says, tonight you die. And for what? For what? Where's all your money going to go? Where are all your crops going to go? You spent all of your time focused on your stuff, focused on consumption. And what happened? You became the one that was consumed. Now, this could be a story that you feel like, you know, it's just out there doesn't apply. But I wonder, does it sound awfully familiar? Like, I wonder if this guy would fit in really well in 2022 America, in 2022 Charlotte culture. Do you see the sharp contrast between this man and Jesus? Between, I'm going to store up more barns, more for me to consume, versus I have no place to lay my head. And yet Jesus is clear. He's inviting us into the better life. He lived the best life, and this man lived the life of a fool. And so we're called to move from being this man, the man with the consumption plan, to a life of Jesus with him. So what does that mean for us? How do we actually do that? That would be the practice of simplicity. Be the practice of simplicity. Now, simplicity isn't necessarily what Jesus himself would say that he's doing. Like, we don't have any verses where Jesus is saying, I'm living the simple life, come do it like me. But simplicity is a practice where we can follow Jesus into a life where we're intentional, where we're intentionally clearing out anything that is undermining or distracting us from what ultimately matters. Life with him, loving him, loving other people. So we simplify so that our time, our budget, and our mind and our desires are free, are freed up to actually go after Jesus, life in the kingdom with him. This is ultimately a means to an end, life with him. Now, there's two things I'm not saying when I'm talking about simplicity, and I think they're worth spending some time on. One is that simplicity is not the poverty gospel. I'm not talking about the poverty gospel, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, it's the idea that in order for you to be saved or loved by God, you have to do some financial damage to yourself or be in a, a financially poor state. It's an over-spiritualization 
of poverty. And that's not what this invitation is. The Bible's really clear. It's not about the stuff. You can be godly and rich, and you can be ungodly and poor. And there's also things that are material, that God has created, that are worth enjoying. The Bible's clear on that. We're not talking about the poverty gospel. Secondly, we're not talking about minimalism. Not talking about minimalism. Now, I'd argue that there's nothing inherently wrong with minimalism. I think a lot of the practices uh, are really helpful and, and honestly could line up a lot with what we're talking about. However, there are a couple barriers and things worth clarifying. One, we're not talking about a style. Not talking about like you only wear black now or whatever. That's not, that's not a goal. Um, I know some people like to do that. It's cool. Um, it's not about architecture. It's not about uh, a decor of your house. It can be some of those things, but that's not the point. It's not about being cool or trendy. And whereas minimalism is often talked about, like clearing out space, clearing out your things so that you can you know, be more efficient and freed up to do things that you want to do, and I hope some of that does happen as we practice that. That's not the point. The point is we're clearing away things in your life so that you can make space for God. Clearing out the clutter make space for God. If you wanted a definition, simplicity is the invitation to prioritize a life filled with God rather than a life filled with stuff. Simplicity is the invitation to prioritize a life filled with God rather than a life filled with stuff. It's a way of life where we don't need anything more because we're satisfied in Christ. We know that he's provided everything that we need. We're content. Likewise, we don't need any more stuff because we feel secure in Christ. And it's not just about the physical possessions or money. It's about anything that crowds out your love for God. Anything in your budget, anything in your house, anything on your calendar, your leisure time, your phone, whatever. It's where we don't want any more things on the calendar or in our house or shows to watch or posts to scroll through because instead we want to go do things with God and for God. Simplicity is choosing to have a simple more life that prioritizes what you would say is most ultimate, which is life with God. It's discipleship by subtraction instead of addition. Discipleship by subtraction. So what I want to do before giving you some practical stuff and getting into our guide is I just want to show you three truths about simplicity that we see in what we just read in a couple more verses. So you can kind of go and rewind. Go back to Luke 12. We'll reread starting in verse 18. I'll show you three truths about the simple life. Verse 18. It's the rich man again. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. First truth about the simple life is that the simple life is the wise life. Simple life is the wise life. So throughout the scriptures, you will hear certain people described as wise or people of wisdom. And what it, what it actually means, if you take it throughout the scriptures, is it means that they are living the best way possible. They understand what life is really about. That life is meant for God 
for loving him, loving others, and then they live accordingly. So it's a major compliment for someone to be called wise. And likewise, to be called a fool is a big deal. Which as we just read, what does Jesus call this guy? He calls him a fool. A man who spends his whole life hoarding and gaining more and more. And Jesus says just about the worst insult in the Bible. He says, you're a fool. Literally, someone who does not know how to live. You don't know how to live rightly. And I think that's important to clarify because you can't miss this and just think this guy's problem is just that he's kind of selfish and greedy. He is selfish and greedy, but there's more to it than that. Jesus is saying this guy doesn't understand the nature of reality. That's where his selfishness comes from. He doesn't understand where his money came from, what God designed him for, what God has given him the money for. And simplicity is rooted in wisdom. It's the wise heart that knows all I have comes from God. Every penny, everything that I own comes from God. All the money and possessions in the world are borrowed. They're God's. They're not yours. Every dollar in your bank account. And you can think, well, I have a job. So that's why I have the things. That's why I have the money. And that's great. You can think that. But break it down. Why do you have the job? Why were you able to make it through the interview process? Why were you able to be able to interview in the first place? What got you ahead? How do you have the ability to wake up every day and physically, competently do the job? It's not you. It's God's grace in your life. And to think otherwise is to be just like the fool in the parable. As we live the the simple life, we live wisely. We don't get consumed by things, but rather own them as stewards on borrowed authority from God. Or we say, of course, I'm blessed to have this, and I'm okay to give give them away. And if I do, I won't be lacking anything, because God provided for me in the first place, so if I need anything else, He'll surely provide it again. This is true, not just, again, of our stuff, but of our calendars, our leisure time, our relationships. It's foolish for me to not prioritize living in congruence with what I say ultimately matters. It's foolish for me, if I say I'm a Christian, to not prioritize God and His kingdom, to not be generous, to not prioritize relationships and people and time with Him and let my life get crowded out. It's foolishness. A simple life is the life of wisdom. We'll keep going. In verse 22, and we'll see the second truth. We've got a chunk of Scripture here. Verse 22. He keeps teaching. And He said to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today, live in the field today, and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need Him. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Second truth about the simple life is that the simple life is the trusting life. Simple life is the trusting life. So it's no accident that right after Jesus tells this parable, he goes into a teaching about how anxiety and worry are tied to our money and our possessions. So Jesus here invites us to think deeply about the nature of reality through a series of questions. He says, is not your life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds, look at the ravens. Are we not more valuable to God than they? He says, can you add a, a single moment to your life through your worry and anxiety? Why are you anxious about your clothes, about the way you look, about being warm and provided for? Won't God provide for you? Maybe a simple way to summarize it is he's asking us, what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe about God? And this truth, according to Jesus, is that we don't need to be anxious about what we have or don't have, or even if our basic needs will be met, because God sees us, He knows us, and He loves us, and of course, He will provide for us. Jesus gets to the problem. He says the problem is not the stuff. It's not what you have or you don't have or how it's going to happen. The problem is your faith. The problem is that we don't trust God. And His invitation for us is simple trust in the Father who already knows what you need, has already provided for it, and instead to sink the kingdom. And note what He says. He says not just seek, seek the kingdom and good luck, like you'll figure it out. He says seek the kingdom and all of these things will be provided for you. Run after Jesus. Run after me. Run after God's kingdom. Don't spend all of your time, your energy, your budget, your resources on all of this other stuff. Come after me, and I will provide it all to you. So what we do is we replace anxiety, the idea of what will I do with all these things, with trust in God where we say whatever happens to me, God will take care of me. And in this way, simplicity is more than just a practice. It's a result. It's a result of a heart that believes God is who He says He is and will do what He has said He will do. And in doing so, we actually begin to course correct a heart that's run rampant with consumption and idolatry of more things. And we actually get the security and contentment. Which is interesting. I, have you ever practically wondered how you will get to the place where you feel safe and content? Have you ever thought about that? Like, What does it take? I love how G.K. Chesterton, theologian, said it. He says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. How do you actually desire less? You see who God really is. You see that He knows you, that He loves you, that He's provided it all, and He's invited you to seek after Him with the promise that He will provide the rest, what you need. Trust Him which drives us toward the simple life. All right, we'll finish up in verse 33, the last truth. Verse 33, he ends his teaching by saying this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, 
with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. The last truth about the good life is that, or about the simple life, is that the simple life is the good life. The simple life is the good life. So if you think back to the intro with all the stats and all that, now you've been hearing this and thinking, the big question for all of our materialism and consumption and the things that we have, it becomes, are our lives actually any better? Are our lives actually any better? Statistically, we have more stuff than ever before. The average American house has 300,000 items in it. It's the middle of the bell curve. We consume so much more. The average house has tripled in size in the last 50 years. Does it actually make us more happy? Statistically, the answer is no. It doesn't. Um, at, at large, well-being and happiness has statistically declined. You don't want to know when? The 1950s, when all of this advertising stuff became more mainstream. The recent research on money and happiness is actually really fascinating. The research, all of it, by and large, shows that more money does not equate to more Happiness. It's actually really interesting. You could Google this. It's called the fulfillment curve. It actually says money, money and happiness do not correlate like this. It's actually more like a bell curve. And the top of that curve, do you know what it is? It's getting out of poverty. So once your basic needs are met, that actually does equate to happiness. But after that, it levels off and then it decreases. And what increases is anxiety. It does not Work. It's not just with money, it's with all materialism and consumption. Now, not only is the Bible saying that your heart won't find contentment in stuff, we have now identified a psychological phenomenon called hedonic adaptivity. It is the reason that anytime you buy something new, six months later, it is not that cool anymore. That's a psychological phenomenon. That you buy the house, you buy the car, you buy the shoes. You buy the jacket, whatever. And it's great for three months, a couple weeks maybe, six months, a year. But at some point, you'll think, I need something better. It's because your brain is wired as well as your flesh is bent towards needing more. It will never be enough. We now have more than enough data to confirm that Jesus was right all along. That more stuff, money, and things to consume doesn't lead to the good life. Now, I wonder if um, the first two points that I made about the truths, um, that the, the simple life is uh, the wise life and the trusting life were not all that surprising, like pretty easily digestible. Like you're like, yeah, makes sense if you idolize money and consumption that you're a fool, and yeah, I'm not trusting God. I think we can grasp that. I think you probably knew that. But I, I also think that the reason that we struggle to change, that we struggle to take that information and respond to it functionally, is because we don't really believe that it's better to repent. We don't really believe that Jesus is holding out the good life. But He is. What He's offering up is real contentment. This, the stuff, the chasing after it all, it doesn't work. Jesus' Jesus's concluding point to his interaction, beginning with the man asking him to divide the inheritance, is to sell your possessions. Not to get more, but to sell your possessions and give it away. It's to store up 
real treasure to come into the good life. He flips the whole value system on its head, right? The world says you need more, and Jesus says you need less. Give it away, and actually come and be secure and, and satisfied. When we're stuck consuming and stuck attached to our possessions, we're not living the good life. We're living on a hamster wheel. You just want more. You'll just be more jealous. You'll just be more sad and feel like the good life is kind of a couple years ahead instead of seeing that what you have right now is intentional, intentionally given by God, and it is enough. He says invest in something better in money bags and true treasure that will not grow old, treasure in heaven. It says there's, um, there's always going to be another vacation that you're going to want to go on. You go to the really cool place in the Caribbean, well, next time it's like I need to go somewhere else. There's always going to be the next house, the next pair of shoes, another show to watch, more money in your savings account, but it's all fleeting. Instead, he says, don't get focused on that. Treasure me and follow me. Clear out your life. Give it away and experience freedom. Experience joy and find what you're looking for. The good life will not be found in a big old abundant 401k or passive income or a lot of savings or equity in your house or early retirement or a life of pleasure. But in life with God in the kingdom, the good life cannot and will not be found in stuff or money or anything else on your calendar that distracts you from God. We're instead called to a simple life, to be free, to be generous, and enjoy what we have with deep content. So let me, let me end just a couple things. The simple life, it, it is the better life. We, we simplify our lives so that we can actually follow after God and be unattached to the things of this world. And we can step into it confidently because we can trust that God is who He says He is, that He knows not only our needs, but He knows our hearts. And that's a huge distinction because if He knows our hearts, He knows ultimately what will satisfy us. And we can trust Him with all of it because of what He's done for us on our behalf. He says, come follow me into freedom away from the hamster wheel of needing more. The freedom from an overcrowded heart, an overcrowded house, an overcrowded schedule and budget. Freedom from looking for the next thing to consume and freedom to rest and live simply and deeply with God and others. That's a gift. It's a gift purchased on our behalf by Jesus who not only invites us into the good life but makes it all possible. So um, I'm going to just end by doing a quick flyover of our practice guide that we'll be doing in our groups this week. It's very simple, ironic. We're just simplifying. We're going to look at three categories, right? In light of all of this, we're going to try to simplify our possessions. So the things that we own, physical. We're going to try to simplify our time, Things like uh, uh, clutter on our schedule, any distractions. And we're going to try to simplify our spending. And all of that is an invitation from Jesus to, to find Him underneath the pile of all of our stuff. It's going to be great. So we'll end how we always do, and I'm excited to do that practice with you this week, but we'll end with communion. Communion is our reminder every week and Christians have had this reminder for centuries and millennia. Jesus instituted this the night before he died, where he said, take the bread and the juice, or our juice, he had wine, 
And remember my body and my blood broken and spilled for you. This is um, something that we do that is actually only for Christians. We don't say that to exclude anyone out of meanness, but just because if you don't believe in Jesus, you would be saying something that is untrue about you. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ and then take communion for the first time. But for those of us in Christ, we'll take both first the, the bread, the cracker, and we'll remember Jesus' body broken for us. You can take and eat. Likewise, we'll take the, the juice and remember, remember His blood that was spilled on our behalf to cleanse us from all sin. You can drink now. I'll invite the band back up and I'll pray for us and then we'll respond. Father God, we thank You for Your promises. We thank You for uh, the simple life that's modeled by you, Jesus, and also by your people and your early church. People have done this for the history of the church, and it's something that we're invited into too to resist the pull of our consumption culture. Lord, we confess that it's so tempting to just go after the next thing, to find our security and what we have, a certain number in our bank account or all of, all of our accounts, to find joy and contentment on our next online order, our next meal. We fantasize about our future, but only in regards to what we have versus what we don't have now. And God, we're missing what you have for us. We're missing the freedom from worldly, earthly things. And we're trading that in when you offer us contentment and security in you, which is what we're designed for. We thank you, Jesus, that we can trust you to get off the hamster wheel and to run after you because of your life, your death, and your resurrection. We thank you for it. In your name, Jesus, amen.